Welcome to the podcast, Most People Don't, But You Do. Stories and conversations about the benefits received and the fulfillment enjoyed by doing what most people don't. This is Bart Berkey, CEO and founder of Most People Don't. We're a motivational storytelling and training company where we provide enabling tools to empower you to do what most people don't. I am beyond excited to have an incredible gentleman as our guest today. It's Mr. Mike Acker. He is a connector, a podcast host, and a communication expert. And when we say expert, he's not only an author of several books, he's also a speaker, he's a consultant, and I don't want you to blush, but I'm gonna go on a little bit more, Mike, about your background. Uh, founder of Advanced Coaching and Consulting. He's also the founder of Audacity Speakers, which we're gonna talk a little bit about, and that's how I'm connected with Mike. Speaker coach for TEDx Seattle, chairman, past chairman of the board for Go On The Mission. And what's really incredible is prior to all of this, 13 years as executive director of City Point Church. So we are thrilled to welcome Mike to the podcast, and he is certainly a person that does what most people don't. Mike, I'm so glad to be able to chat with you in this platform. And thanks, Bart, and thanks for the really nice introduction right there. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I know we'll do a couple of teaser clips with video, but if you are just listening to this from an audio perspective, I'm so proud to know Mike because he has begun to teach me so many different things, so many wonderful ideas. And behind him are examples of many of his books, which we're going to get into here momentarily. But first, Mike, I just want to talk about, um, tell us a little bit about your background, like from a growing up perspective. Where did you grow up? Did you have siblings? What were some of your early influences? Absolutely. Uh, so I always like to tell people that especially this is actually one of my motivational talks about choices. And I'll tell people my dad was a drug dealer. My mom was a witch. I became a pastor <laughs> So in the seventies. My dad and mom were smuggling marijuana mostly and going down to, to, to different places in South America. My dad learned how to fly planes for that purpose. And my dad learned how to speak Spanish for that purpose and would just come back and had several boats and several planes crashed a couple of planes in the process. And, and during that process, he got a law degree because he wanted to stick it to the man as an ultimate hippie and then never did anything with it for years. And then when my sister and I were being born and they're coming, you know, planning on a family, my sister's two years older than me, they thought, well, we should get out of that lifestyle. And they went into the legal drugs. They went into coffee company in around 1980. And so they started up a coffee company right when coffee was huge in Seattle and had a spot right on Queen Anne and what which is over by where the original Starbucks is more or less and then did that really well my mom started a preschool and then they became radical Christians and not like political Christians like radical like that not radical and just like show up on church on Sunday like let's find out who who Christians are supposed to be according to the Bible let's try our our hardest to be that and let's really live that life and so we were feeding people on the streets of seattle taking care of uh, some aids victims back when you didn't know if you could catch aids by public restroom you we were doing visits to the the senior centers to visit people who were who were being taken care of and nobody was showing up to visit them so we did a lot of different things and it was a really great experience and that's really as i was a kid seeing that and then when I was 10, we moved to Mexico 
my dad had transitioned to law. So he did some legal work in Mexico for a resort down there. And then we did a mission. We fed uh, at one point in time, 500 people twice a week and all kinds of other stuff that we were doing, getting people who were out of the school system back into the school system and really doing things that nobody else were doing to your podcast name. Yeah. Oh my and gosh. Going and, and I, and, and I know, Mike, you know, first time I met you shared a little bit about your background, but you just went like 14 deeper layers, <laughs> which is really interesting. And, you know, I'm going to have some additional questions for you. So so as you had described it, uh, selling drugs and exporting drugs and moving drugs, you know, marijuana, whatever the case is. So was that in an age where you knew what they did for a living or was it before you kind of were conscious or? I was very, that was, so they stopped selling drugs before I was born. Okay. And they switched over to the coffee company. So my earliest memories of my dad's job is actually, you remember in the eighties, how you didn't have to have seatbelts for kids. Yes. And my, my parents had a mail truck. And so we would be in the back of the mail truck with the burlap bags of coffee and just the aromas coming off on us. Our whole family smelled like coffee. And my mom would go around delivering our, our product to the local grocery stores and such. And then my dad was having some issues with skin, so he needed to get out of it. Sold the coffee company for a great amount in 1983-ish. Did the bar exam around there. That's when they became Christians, if I get it right. Mm -hmm. It's all kind of murky. We were in Hawaii when my dad became a Christian. And my parents were visiting this hippie commune, <laughs> the Love Israel family. If you look it up, it's kind of interesting. And they were visiting. And so we were there for Christmas season. And my parents learned that my parents were totally naive about anything about the Bible or Christianity. But all of a sudden, they're like, okay, we're going to follow Jesus. And so they bought Jesus a happy birthday cake because they found out Christmas was about him. Mm -hmm. And we went to a hippie commune on Christmas. And they all smoked pot and ate a happy birthday jesus cake <laughs> oh my goodness so i was there aware of okay. during some of the i i remember very vaguely as a four-year-old you know how those memories are there like you're dancing there's like lots of crazy weird looking people and then we settled into a pretty normal yeah. neighborhood suburban family and my dad started practicing law so it wasn't until i was 15 Mm -hmm. where I was starting to make some of those choices where parents go, okay, some choices are being made here, 15-ish. And my dad was very strict on me, extremely strict. I come home three minutes late, I'm grounded for three months. And so my mom sits down with me because there's this rift that's developing. And she says, I, I want you to understand what, where your dad's coming from. And then she goes into this backstory. I'm sure my job was just dropped the whole time because at that point in time, he was you know, a very respected, just Christian person, Christian right. professional missionary. And, and you're probably thinking, well, what did I do wrong? You know, I'm not a bad kid. Yes, I was a little late, but why am I getting into so much trouble? Right, right. And, and it's so funny because I, I look at this and my mom said, so she came from a very Latin Catholic family, Irish Latin Catholic family, and Catholic masses in Latin. So she didn't know a lot about Christianity because that, and then so she very strict, very good, regimented, regimented family. My dad came from a totally broken family. Like literally my grandma was insane, just crazy. My grandfather was alcoholic. Mm -hmm. 
it's like counseling session right here, Bart. Mm-hmm. It's all it's all good. <laughs> my my dad, my dad was you know smoking pot and driving cars at fifteen, cooking for the Hell's Angels in the summer, doing whatever he wanted, whatever he wanted he he did, and so he didn't feel a lot of love because mm-hmm. his parents just didn't have any any say in his life, and so he wanted to probably went overboard in the way, and if I went one out of going towards the line i got corrected <laughs> yeah so and what i love about the podcast and be able to talk with people like you is we get to know like yes you're an incredible business owner incredible entrepreneur and you're giving and a great author and speaker and coach but what i really like to understand is exactly what formed you not exactly but the elements that help to form who you are who you are now in why you have that entrepreneur spirit in, in so many different things. I do want to go back to the situation in which your, your parents made the change. Do you know if anything happened that, you know, was there an accident? Um, what, do you know what caused them to change from getting from one lifestyle into a different lifestyle? Yeah, so according to to them, so my mom was a practicing witch in terms of seances and astral projection and a lot of you know spells and, and curses and things like that, hexes, and uh, reading people's auras, things like that. So she meditated a lot and communed with other spirits. And she was, according to her, she was talking to this Christian couple and they had them over for dinner. I can't remember exactly what it went, but they were talking and they said, oh, you meditate. You should meditate on the blood of Jesus. And she said, I have no idea what that is, but sure, she'll, she'll meditate on anything. She thought all religions were the same. They all, all of them had the same. So she went into a trance and she focused in on the blood of Jesus. And during that time, she said, I felt a power course through my body that was unlike anything else I had ever felt. Mm. And the only way I could describe it was everything else was just an imitation of that. Every other time I felt power, it was trying to pretend it was that. So whatever this blood is and whatever this Jesus is, I need to figure it out. And so she started this journey towards Jesus and thinking like, who is Jesus? She'd been to Catholic mass for years, but it'd been Latin. So she didn't understand anything and, and really didn't understand other than he was just a religious symbol and, and not one that she was really interested in. So she began this journey. And my, my sister does remember this. Uh, my, my mom burned all her spell books when we were probably about three-ish or, or something like that. And my dad comes home and he, she, my mom is burning all her spell books and all of her crystals, she's cracking them and breaking them. She totally gave that up. And he said, what are you doing? And she said, I've become a Christian. He said, cool, what's for dinner? And so he was a complete agnostic yeah. and uh, very intelligent. My dad's very intelligent. Both my parents, very intelligent. And my dad was, said, um, the only true intellectual approach to faith is that you just can't know and you can't know. So I'm an agnostic. I can't know if you're not, I can't be an atheist. I can't know if you are, I can't be any kind of religious person. So my dad at that point in time, his drug, his drug days were catching up to him and there was a legal thing that was progressing towards simplifying a lot. Mm -hmm. And we were in Hawaii, as I mentioned, and he was, on the verge of being caught and being sent to jail if if it happened and so he was standing on a dock in hawaii and said god i don't know if you're real i don't think you're real 
I don't think I'm talking to anybody right now, but if, if maybe you are, get me out of this and I'll do anything you want all of my life. So he's walking back from there and he walks across the, par the parking lot and he hears his voice audibly out loud. The only time he said he's ever heard this he says, Timothy, I'm Jesus and I'm your friend. And then the next day, he got a letter from the IRS in Hawaii, where we were for a couple months, saying they're not going to pursue the case anymore. I have chills. And so my dad says, okay, well, and I mean, they're smoking marijuana with the Love Israel family. Yeah. And, and he's like, I guess I got to figure out who this Jesus is. So they're in Kona, Hawaii. And there's this camp called Youth with a Mission. It's, if you look it up, it's a pretty well-known deal. And the original founder of this organization was there. So kind of like, it's kind of like radical hippies for Jesus type deal. And it's like, let's heal the world. Let's, um, if you think about Mormon missionaries who go out for a couple of years and just really like try to live out their faith for a couple of years at 18, 19, that's kind of the type of organization for Christians. And uh, this is in about 1984-ish. And so my parents are there, find out about this and sign up right there on the spot and they can't remember if they just sold their coffee company or what where they were in this whole journey and so we did a three-month kind of intensive deep dive into bible how to read the bible how to pray how to how to who is jesus so my parents did this like intense three-month learning and then we went to smuggle bibles to china went to taiwan went to serve in the dumps in philippines went to do japan and hong kong and this is 1985 and then we came back to Washington, moved into a new house, enrolled in a Christian elementary school. My dad started working with a whole bunch of Christian lawyers. And there we settled into a, 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 a normal 1985 yeah. Christian family. Yeah. What a story. And I was, I was curious, and I think you already answered the question. I was wondering if your mother had to do convincing to your father but it really wasn't the case. It Not also all. kind of came to him, the, the vision, the audible, the sound. So he knew that this is what he wanted to pursue. So yeah. tell, tell me <laughs> tell me a little bit about high school then. Was this back in Seattle in the state of Washington? Yeah, so I went to high school. So we moved to Mexico when I was 10. My dad came home from the law firm and said, I quit my job, we're going to Mexico. And then they had a big conversation and then we we moved and we rented out our house and in the small little town i guess at that time it was a couple thousand people maybe two three thousand people and we, across from seattle and we moved to mazatlan mexico and we my dad ended up getting to some legal work part-time to pay the bills and then we just did mission work we fed the poor my dad with his legal background and my mom's just compassionate and brave personality found kids who were out of the school system. Mm -hmm. And, and so my, my mom's like five, well, she died years ago, but she's uh, was five foot one and a half petite and absolutely stunningly beautiful woman. Everybody who ever met her would say that. And she would go out into these poor neighborhoods <laughs> in the daytime, but she'd go out in the poor neighborhoods. Like we're talking your suspension and, your shocks are going to break going out there type deal. Mm -hmm. And she would uh, just go around and talk to kids and with her very bad Spanish. And one day she picked up three kids and brought them home. And cause she found out that their mom had three kids from three different dads. And then she worked as like, um, 
kind of like a brothel type deal. Mm-hmm. And she had this hovel of a house, just some some tar paper on some sticks. And the kids would stay in this hovel all day. And uh, she walks in, she uh, sees there's a maggoty fish on the corner of this tiny little house. Mm-hmm. And she's just like, this can't be right. She's like, why aren't you in school? And they, they had whatever reason had not gone to school and had been dropped out. And they had like a maybe like an 11, 12 year old, eight ish, and six, and none of them were school. So she takes them home and delouses them in our house. And we had this $500 house that was gorgeous, three blocks away from the beach. So she delouses them. My, my sister and I come home, and my mom's got these kids, and she's dressing them in our clothes. And we're like, what's going on here? And she says, we got to do something about these kids. And so my dad looks into it and finds out that in Mexico at that point in time, if you had gotten out of the school system, you could not get back in. You, you were done. And that's like, this is unacceptable. So working in his legal manner, my dad basically found out a way that we could start a kind of a what would be called here, maybe an alternative school mm-hmm. that would help people get out who are out of the school system. Maybe you're 25 and you just never finished elementary Yeah, and actually get you back in or, or finish or get you to that completion. So they started a organization and we had a place called home for help in Spanish. Hogar de Ayuda. And, and then that became a job training, like a vocational training, dental school, medical clinics, uh, American professionals would come down and, do all kinds of training with doctors and dentists would come down and, and do work for free Christian or non. Mm-hmm. We didn't care if you were a Christian, or non Christian, <clears throat> uh, physical therapist, chiropractor, dentist, doctor. And we did a lot of that work out there. And some of the only work that people had ever done was from our clinic. Amazing. Now in Mexico, it's mm-hmm. progressed. There's a lot more help. That whole area that we went to is now paved, but it's, it's, it was quite crazy at the time. So this was high school. Yeah, that was my high school years. Yep. That was my 10 through 17. 10 through 17. Did you feel, and maybe this is too direct of a question, how did you feel rather with your mother bringing in three children? You made sacrifices, you were traveling all over, you saw what they were giving to others, but how did you feel? Yeah, there, that was, that was a contentious issue 100 percent. because as much as i would like to take credit and go wow you know my sister and i were like the most compassionate kids ever there was a part of us that just just wanted to be normal i think every kid in their those those years primarily they, they want to fit in and we were already struggling not fitting in and i mean i was in fifth grade, I wanted to learn Spanish because it was our first year there. I did homeschool, finished the fifth grade in homeschool. So I was already done with the academics of it. And, and yet I wanted to learn Spanish. And so I said, dad, let me do an immersion. And I'm thinking to do something like my friend did a nice private Mexican school where a lot of them are people who've been to the United States or at least familiar or watch movies, but they, they're not a wowed by Americans. This is 1990. And so my dad drops me in, into, he knew through his mission work, he knew this fifth grade teacher and he thought this would be perfect. So he drives me into 
the most downtown inner city all mexican school that you could possibly be in 1990 now in 1990 movies from america would take two months to six months if they ever arrived to show up on one of the four screens that that big city had mm. so and that area did not have cruise ships coming in so the kids in the school i went to out of the entire school i was probably the first american that most of the kids saw and my dad drops me and he's like hey if you don't want to go no problem i'm gonna go talk to the principal he comes out and says i'll pick you up at 2 30 and i was enrolled oh my gosh so it was quite traumatic i think there was a lot of moments like that that was like yeah. oh my gosh so there was a lot of dealing at the same time there's there's pride in our parents because we know they're doing something good even though it might impinge on us on saturdays it was mission day we'd get up early and go set up mission and feed kids do stuff with kids for hours so i unless i had a soccer game and those were later on in the afternoon generally i would do stuff from from i don't know 6 a.m in the morning till noonish maybe two o'clock and maybe sometimes leave early for earlier soccer game but yeah it so it was almost like your your life was being dictated for you at a very young age you, you know it wasn't your idea to move to mexico it wasn't your idea to sell the you know to help deliver coffee and ride in the mail truck it, it, none of these things were your ideas and yet you were then put into that situation that you had to help that you were forced to help you didn't have options you didn't have choices and I, I really appreciate what you said is that all you wanted to do was to be able to fit in because you didn't necessarily know the language. And yet here your parents were, and your mother in particular, were accepting other children's and allowing them to fit into your home. Right. So at 17, the question is, did you get out of Dodge to go to college or university? Yeah, so let me back up a little bit on that. And there's yeah. a great, there's a great learning lesson here and that I'll often extrapolate this principle when i tell kind of motivational mm -hmm. stories as we as we both do in the public speaking world and so it was hard for years until i chose not to not look back and that fifth grade sixth grade seventh grade i was close friends with this other american and this other american always just craved to be back in the united states it's all he talked about and he was two years older than me and he was only other American. And he was a pretty cool kid, very charismatic. And so I grabbed a hold of that. And so we all know, show me your friends, I'll show you your future. We all know that we are the amalgamation of the five closest people that we are to you. And so this, this was my world, this kid was my world. He was the, my best friend for a long time. And, and I was his best friend, two years apart. And we listened to the music he wanted to listen to. And he was super Americanized. And, and so I held on to what he held on to. Once he moved back, I still held on to it. And then I craved this idea of going to live in the United States. So my parents gave in and in eighth grade, they let me move to the United States for a few months by myself with another family, right? But not with my family. So we moved with my mom's best friends, fantastic family, amazing family. And yet I was younger, three years younger than their youngest of their kids. And, and so I had a lot of spare time and I moved back to Washington. I hadn't been there for years, three years, like really lived there and it gets cold in October and rainy and dark. And 
all of a sudden I'm looking at things and kids are kids anywhere. It doesn't matter where you go. Kids are kids and they're nice ones. and There's not nice ones. And there's ones that are hurting you because they're hurt. And so all of a sudden I saw it for what it is. It was eighth grade. <laughs> and I realized, oh, this is the same. It's just in a different location. Yeah. And maybe it's not as great as I remember. And maybe it's not as great as everything I'm. And, and this is where I pull out that principle for people. By looking back and holding on to your past job, holding on to your past relationship, past marriage, <laughs> past whatever, past body shape, past hair, <laughs> by whatever it is. And I say that because my hair is slowly slowly not so slowly moving away from well you look a heck of a lot better than i do let me just tell you (laughs) i fake it i fake it (laughs) yeah but we we look back and then we don't embrace the future an incredible revelation at eighth grade Mm -hmm. and i came back and i said i'm in and all of a sudden a friend that i was good friends we just started hanging out all the time and, and so ninth grade was actually one of my favorite years of my life. It was a fantastic, fantastic year. And I really am glad that I was able to, to really accept it. And, and then uh, by the time I was done in Mexico, I was actually more Mexican than I was American. And once again, the move, the choice to move back, the, it was precipitated by other people's decisions. So I actually had the choice to stay. Mm. But my sister got pregnant and she was back in the United States with, with then they got married really young. And my parents said, we're going to go back to support them for a year. Do you want to stay and finish out your senior year? I was in, I was accepted at the Harvard law of Mexico. Cause you go straight into to law in Mexico and I was planning on staying and going to Guadalajara, going to law school, and then going back to the United States and getting a JD in the United States and then becoming a corporate international lawyer. Mm-hmm. And the starting wage in 1998 would have been something like $150,000. Wow. And so I would have been in a good spot in the 2000s. And then all my family leaves. And I just knew that I knew at that point in time, mm-hmm. I was making some decisions even further out of the line. Mm-hmm. I was having 150 people over to my house when my parents were out of town. Mm-hmm. I'd take all the furniture, Bart, uh-huh. all the furniture, all the stuff on the wall, and I'd move it to the second story. Oh, man. And then I would just strip the house down and people would come over. One time we came over and there was so much drinking going on. Not, it's not encouraging and I'm not proud of this, sure. but that we literally used every receptacle that was in the kitchen to drink, whether it was water or alcohol. I mean, we're talking pots and pants. People are bringing their, you know, the different beverages on the counter and, right. and drinking out of pots and pans, every single receptacle that you could possibly have. Uh, it was crazy. So I wasn't doing the best things. Yeah, no, of course, of course. But and you- I was driving like that. Even okay, worse. okay. And so-, and, and, and so then you decided, I'm assuming, to go to the U.S. with yeah. your family, to be near your sister, yeah. to be probably an uncle- I'm assuming at that time. Okay. And I like what you also said about that you chose not to look back. And I I would like to take credit for this. And I don't can't remember which friend told me but the past is perfect. Because it already happened. The past (laughs) is perfect. Nothing you can do about it. It's perfect. My wife always says, 
uh, and, and I think, I, I don't know if I shared this with you or not or our listeners, but my son moved to the Czech Republic just about a week and a half ago to finish his film degree. Oh, and my wow. wife just asked me the other day, because I mean, we're so sad, we're sad, we're excited for him, but we're so sad inside. And she said, well, do you think we should have done more research on the schools in the United States for him to finish his film degree? And the answer is no, we didn't. This happened for a reason. It's what he wanted to pursue. The past is perfect. We, we can't go back and say, we should have, could have, would have done something different. The past is perfect. So I love what you just said, Mike, about the past is in the past and it's time to move forward and you chose not to look back. All right, so then this brings you, you're back in the United States. Back in the United States. So now I'm like a, a senior. Mm-hmm. and no one wants to go to high school when you're a senior. It's like, ah, oh, man, like a brand new high school, you know, with 2,000 people. I went to a small private school with 30 people in my class. Mm. Like, ah, <laughs> I'm more Mexican than I was American. I love Mexico. Mm. I was more Mexican. I really embraced it. And so I was in Mexico. You go into a room, you say hi to every single person. If there's less than 100 people, you say hi to every single person. Shake mm. their hands, kiss their cheek, if they're a woman. And in every single person, you don't do that in the United States. Right. You don't even acknowledge people if they walk in the room if you don't know them. And, and all of a sudden, I'm in this whole new community. So I went to the local community college, which I thought was just a disgrace because I was going to this private place. I'm going to go to the Harvard. And, but I went in and I showed them my, my, all my paperwork, all my academics, and said, you're done with high school. All you have to do, we'll give you a, a degree. We'll give you your certificate if you'll just do a U.S. history class. So I did a U.S. history class and graduated a year ahead of time and then did another year of community college. As I'm thinking, like, well, where do you go? You can't go to Harvard from a community college. That doesn't look good. You can't go to. And I'm looking around just wondering. So I'm applying from some different places. And that's the point in time where the faith of my parents, mm-hmm. I had to decide whether it was going to be my faith. And so I remember there was a pivotal week where I really thought about it and had some different external circumstances that caused me to think about it and said, yes, I believe what they believe. This is not something I was just raised in, but I believe it. And so I started getting heavily involved in a church and fantastic leadership programs and such too. And while I was there, I made a decision while I was in that community college and in that, that church for that first year, I made a decision to start heading down this path and become a pastor. So I went to a Christian college instead of University of Washington or some of the other schools I was looking at was MIT where my grandfather had gone and uh, Harvey Mudd, some other places. And instead of going engineering or going pre-law, I actually went an interdisciplinary route and prepared myself for a broader range. I did a lot of communication and went to Northwest University, graduated in 2002, and then ended up taking a tiny bit of time off since I worked my way through college, 40 hours a week, and debated in college. Took a little time off, and then became a pastor when I was 23. Yeah, that that was going to be my question. Very young, deciding that that's the path that you wanted to pursue at a very, very young age, despite having parties for 150 people, despite be feeling more 
Mexican than American, despite yeah. being a little resentful, perhaps that you didn't fit in and you were helping and everyone else was dictating what your future is. Do you remember what happened, Mike, uh, that week, if you don't mind, yeah. if, and if it's too personal, that's okay. But what happened that week that you said, you know what, this is what I want to do. Yeah. And I would say I didn't feel resentful at that point in time. I felt resentful young. And then later on, I felt resentful of my sister and my brother-in-law for making decisions that affected me. Okay. Because it was their decisions. And actually that was a a decision not too long ago Mm -hmm. within the last couple of years that I had to go, oh, my, my sister screwed me over by doing that. And once again, having to let go of that past, yeah. as all of a sudden you realize it's something that they did affected you and they were able to make the most of it, but it actually affected you in a negative way. So, but what happened at that point in time is, so I came back the seven, summer of 17 and I started dating this girl right away. And we, she, her older sister had gotten pregnant, same age as she was. And, and so and we're going down that path pretty darn fast. And, and I just thought to myself, is this the route I want to go? And she was just all into me. And I was more like, yeah, this is fun. I'm a 17 year old guy about to turn 18. We went to church together and they, it was, it was what, sometimes what you need to hear is not what you want to hear. Mm -hmm. And in that pastor, his name is Wes Davis. He's a fantastic speaker he's got a couple books he's in Kitsap County he runs a church called New Life Kitsap and I just really connected with what he's saying and and then I had to think as I walked out of there I thought okay I'm going down this path of running away from faith at that point in time my parents actually couldn't get me to go to church my last part of my junior year in Mexico they couldn't get me to go to church Uh, they couldn't get me to go serve in the mission if I didn't want to if I didn't want to I was done. So my dad and I were at this big divide. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it was helpful. My dad didn't push it. And I got in some fights and uh, yeah, I got a three car accident. <laughs> and, uh, but here I am, I'm looking at it going, my dad bought me my first car in the United States and we're, you know, working on some things and what do I want to do? So wasn't this, wasn't this huge thing. It was just like this realization, like I'm a big choices in front of me. Do I want to be a person who holds on to a Christian faith, which there's freedom in that in some ways, and there's restrictions as in anything. If you're going to take a job, there's freedoms and restrictions in it. If you're going to become a parent, there's freedoms and restrictions. And so I'm looking at the pros and cons of this in a very almost analytical way and going, okay, do I believe the message of the Bible? I do. I I intellectually believe it. And there's reasons intellectually to believe it. There's emotive reasons to believe it. There's, there's other reasons. Sometimes there's negative things about it because people, what people have done in it. I'm like, well, that, that wasn't really, that's not Jesus's fault that people have taken him and done bad things with it. So I'm, I mean, all those things that people say, those big cultural things. And, and so it was a week of just going, what do I want? Mm. Mm. And, and I think it was really interesting. I, I remember reading about this guy named Nicky Gumbel. And he was a, he was a fantastic lawyer and, or a barrister, I guess, in London, in England. And he set out to disprove the Bible. And so he read all of it 
or read hours of it one night and he got halfway through and he goes, I think this is real. And if it is real, then God is real. And if God is real, he probably has a way for me to live. Will I do it? And that's how I felt. So it was just this, and, and just like I had done in eighth grade and ninth grade in Mexico, I just decided to go, yes. And so I said, I'm in. And then I just needed to align my life. So I decided that I wasn't going to drink anymore, which is easy because I was in the United States and I'm 18 now. And I was right, it was right when I was turning 18. And then I broke up with this girl because she wasn't the best influence on me. And a lot of my friends that I was hanging out with that, that I still sort of knew were going off to college anyway. And so I got very involved in church, decided to not date, decided to, I probably went a little bit overboard, decided to get rid of some of my music, which I didn't need to do, but decided to stop watching TV and movies for a while and just do school do work and do church wow wow and is that what you then did um for 13 years pastor as well as executive director yeah so i became at 20 i became a pastor small uh, part-time while Mm -hmm. i was in college kids at 22 i became an associate pastor at a church Mm -hmm. and it was all part of this whole network and then i became a senior pastor at new view and that segued right into and that the pastor is the executive director on paper. Okay. So that's the, the title. That's the official title I had. It was executive dresser or, or president, depending on what paperwork. And then I did City Point Church, a senior pastor there for 10 years. At City Point Church, it was more than just a church that I did, which is why the executive director role. Mm-hmm. We had a whole umbrella of compassion works. And we built wells and houses and stuff like that. And then I transitioned to California where I was speaking to thousands of people on a, on a monthly basis. I was on the communication team and at a church of six, seven, 8,000 people. So speaking in front of them. And then from there, I had done that for 18 years. And I said, I was with some friends, just get together, kind of reunion in Washington. I said, I'd be interested in just trying something different. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't looking for a job. And, but I just knew California wasn't the best fit for me. And just wondering and my friend said i'd hire you in a heartbeat well i was already doing communication on the side with some people just make some extra side money as a pastor and then i leaned in consultative sales did extremely well within within one year i took an eight hundred thousand dollar territory built it to four million dollars and i was communication coaching on the side was writing my book i'd get up at 4 45 in the morning take a cold shower write my book published it in 2019. It took off. So all the stuff's happening all the time. I didn't think I was going to leave pastoral ministry, but now I have two jobs because communication coaching started just exploding. I'm doing consultative sales. So much is going on. Also this hobby that was on the side, that was kind of fun. We like used it to go to Vegas. Also this money on the side that I was doing was, was, was coming up and replacing my salary. Then the pandemic hits. Mm Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden the consultative sales is still there, but I didn't have to do as much. So I just leaned into, wrote a couple books, yeah. wrote my, my one spiritual book that was from the time of the pastor. And then when uh, my wife said, let's move to be near my family, I said, well, didn't say it so fast, but I said, uh-huh. okay. And then we just went full time. And so I've been doing this full time for over a year yeah. and, but Along the way, I'd been speaking at events, speaking at conferences. So it, it's, 
nothing in life is cut and dry. Just you did this, just mm-hmm. you did that. Mm-hmm. I've been coaching for 20 years. I've been speaking for 20 years inside the church, outside the church. Yeah. I've been writing for 20 years. Yeah. And now that's what I do. And then I have some other businesses too. Yeah. No, well, first of all, you have so many incredible ideas. And what I really appreciate with you doing Audacity Speakers was you were reaching out to individuals in a very creative manner and saying, who else can I help? Who else can I help that has potential, that has a great message? And what type of team can we create? And I can help them and run a business and create a business that way. I think it's just absolutely brilliant that you are you are continuing to push the limits of your knowledge and learn and learn and learn and adjust. The question that I have for you next, Mike, is when you were a pastor with the churches and speaking to 6,000 people, 8,000 people, did, I believe, well, I'm assuming that you would have an internal sense of gratification because you were spreading the word of what you believe to people that were also believing and, and sharing and celebrating that. When you are now coaching people to speak better and when you're being hired for storytelling and for inspirational talks, do you still feel that same type of gratification, even though the topic is perhaps different? I think there's a very interesting thing that has shifted in me. And when, when I looked at it and thought, I don't think I'm going to go back to pastoring. And my wife and I had this conversation and maybe it was what we'd known. She'd met me as a pastor Mm -hmm. and it was, what was the core of what I was doing? And I'm really big into knowing your values, knowing your mission, knowing your purpose. And so I thought, what is, what has been at the core of what I've done? What? It was all phrased in more of a faith talk. But then I started thinking at the core of what I did was to help people realize their potential. Yeah. (laughs) And in that way, it was a faith potential. It was a God-given potential. It was what God people made for. But really, there was a lot of people that I helped in the community. And I spoke at vigils and I was a community leader and oversaw a whole bunch. I was well-known in the community. That was just about whether your faith or not. Yeah. I would love for you to be full of faith, but whether your faith or not, let me just let me help you. Let me help you realize your best person. I had a professor in college and he said these words, and I've thought about him for years, and it's part of what helped me understand this. And he said something like, You're all in your 20s, and in your 20s, potential is a good word. Because there's means there's a lot to come. But if you get to your 70s and you still have the same potential, then you wasted 50 years. Yeah. Not realizing the potential that you have. Right. You don't want potential in your 70s. And my dad is 72. You want experience. And in the, I mean, obviously you could debate that. And Clint Eastwood is still directing movies and such. But you know what? I would say if he's doing it now, yeah, out of his experience. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, that's an incredible summary. At your 70s, you don't want potential. You want experience. 
and think about all the places that you've seen, all the people that you've helped. And that's what makes not only the content of your books amazing, but also when you speak in our up on stage, because you are talking about the experiences. And Mike, I think I shared this thought with you before. It's easy to be, but better to become. Mm -hmm. And the becoming part takes action and it takes doing. You're not going to sit back and not learn. And I look at the books behind you and I know that you continue to soak up so many different learnings from different people and different conversations. I think that that is so substantial that you don't want potential at 70s. Then, Mike, the last question, again, I could certainly talk to you all day, and we've run into that situation before. <laughs> um, with regard to your book, right, um, Speak With No Fear, mm -hmm. tremendously rated on Amazon, you know, bestseller, well over six or 700 review reviews, and it's essentially a five-star perfect book. What, what do you think lies in that book that has made it so popular and so successful. And I know we're deviating here just a little bit, but I think knowing what we just have talked about, your background, your experiences, your thought process, your values, how were you able to instill them into that book? And what do you think some of the major messages are that have created it to be incredibly popular? Yeah, I think the reason why it's been popular is actually the same reason why some people have not liked it. So there's about, I don't know, about 10 really negative reviews out of the 600 plus reviews on it. And they mostly will say something like this. There's not a lot of content. It's a pep talk. And I think fair because the book is more of a motivational strategic book. Mm. Like here's a high level strategy. I'm not going to go, here's a bulleted thing that you could do. No, here's a strategy. It's a shift. I'm going to help you change. And I'm going to encourage you to do so. Now, if you don't need that shift, if you don't need the encouragement, you're not going to like the book. But a lot of people do. And I write it not as a former, as an expert. Carmine Gallo is an expert. And it seems like, man, he's got everything. And he's, he's got the number one communication book out there. He's, it, and it's fantastic. And he's fantastic. Great guy. And he really comes off as a polished professional. My book does not put me out there and say, here I am. I'm amazing. Not that that's what he does. I don't want to talk down. No, sure. you're not talking down about him at all. Yeah. But my book is more like, man, I've been there. I grew up with a speech impediment when I was a kid that I had to overcome. And I had to overcome speaking in front of Mexico where I had psychosomatic fear every single day, psychosomatic sickness, sorry, due to my fear. Mm -hmm. I had to go back to the United States and fail on stage miserably and fail on stage multiple times in my 20s to, to get to a spot. So I write as a, as someone who's gone from that fear to a place of confidence, Yeah, gone from a place of insecurity to a place of confidence. And it didn't happen overnight. And the things that I talk about in the book, like you be you and speak to one, mm -hmm. these are things that I do. They're strategies mm -hmm. I, I live. They're inherent to me. So when people start asking me, how do I overcome my speaking fear? I went through my own life, not in an academic sense, but said, what did I do? So yeah. the book is deeply personal because yeah. the strategies come from my person and yeah. my history. Yeah. And I just read something the other day because I'm always trying to get better, of course, from a social media perspective. 
that some of the most popular social media posts are when people share their vulnerability. Yeah. When they show that they're not amazing, when they show that they're real, when they express their insecurities. And, and I'll never forget, uh, and I might have shared this with you, Mike, but I suffer panic attacks uh, ever since I was about 12, 13 years old, because when I had my first surgery ever, because I broke my own nose, I had an out-of-body experience because the anesthesia wasn't working. As a result of that, suffered fear of losing control, passing out, fear of dying. Panic attacks for the next 40, 50 years until I kind of got it figured out. But one of my most popular posts was, see you tomorrow, right? And it was a story that from that age, when I returned home after surgery to the time I left for college, I would say to my parents, see you tomorrow, right? As a way of saying good night. Because if they affirm, yes, I'll see you tomorrow, Bart. Don't, you know, I'll see you tomorrow. That meant that I would not die in my sleep. Wow. And that was one of the most popular posts, you know, 25,000 comments or something along those lines on social media, because I was opening up saying, yes, I love to speak. I love to share messages. I wrote my book as a reminder for me to do the right thing, to do what most people don't do. Right. And when you open up, so um, I, I love, love and adore, you know, your vulnerability in sharing with us about your book, Speak With No Fear. And um it, that just says it all. And I read some of the comments before this conversation, and it is changing people's lives. And, and just thinking about it secondarily, and this is going to be the last question, if you don't mind, is that when you say speak with no fear, does it pertain to being on stage? Or does it also pertain to sharing your thoughts? Yeah, a lot of the people I work with, it's not that they're on stage. I think when I originally wrote that book, I was thinking about the person who's going to get up on some kind of stage, whether it's in front of a conference room, but they're, they're going to get up somewhere. And I just never knew how it would just resonate with people and took off. And I've had publishers reach out to me like crazy to publish it. It's got being translated into multiple languages right now. It's already translated into Italian and it's given me some other ones as well. So I didn't think about it that much. I was thinking about the person doing a best man wedding, a best man speech, or going to, you know, whatever it is that you're doing. And then now as, as people reach out to me, I had a, a VP from Amazon fly out to meet with me when I was still working consultative sales and not really going big with this yet. And he had picked my book up at the airport. Mm. He called me up from the book. <laughs> you found out, found my stuff. And he calls me, he goes, is this Mike Acker? I'm like, yeah, this is Mike Acker. He goes, I need to meet with you. <laughs> I'm like, great. Who are you? And he said, I, I work for Amazon. I'm a VP. And I, I picked up your book at the airport. I'm like, oh, okay. So like on Kindle? He goes, no, at the airport. I said, oh, like, like on your iPad? And he goes, no, I went into a bookstore. <laughs> And I picked up your book and I said, from the rack? And he said, yeah, like he couldn't get like why I couldn't. Yeah. And so later on, so, so we go up and we meet together for coffee and we're talking. And he said, this book is like the Bible to me. I'm like, I was a little sacrilegious from a previous uh -huh. pastor. Here. And I said, yeah, it's so cool. So I'm so glad you read it on Kindle. He goes, I bought it at the airport. It's like, he couldn't get it. I've never found it at the airport. Oh, so, really? Yeah, but he picked it up at the one airport that carried yeah. it. And 
And it was so cool. He said, this book, and I said, which strategy really resonates? Every single one. I read this every week. Mm. And I thought to myself, wow. And he doesn't speak in front of large groups. Mm-hmm. He speaks up in meetings. Wow. And this is how he does it. And at that point in time, from then on, when someone would write a negative comment, I'd be like, look, there might be some people who are just saying nice stuff because they want to be nice. But I met a guy who flew out to meet with me and paid me. Yes. And he is, yeah, it's been pretty cool. Helping people reach their potential, regardless, speak up, communicate. Uh, What a lovely way to be able to end the, the podcast, Mike. Um, if individuals would like to be able to reach out to you, so Mike Acker, A-C-K-E-R, uh, several books. If you type in his name on Amazon uh, or other major booksellers, you're going to be able to find it. Speak with no fear, lead with no fear. You have probably what, six or seven other books in addition to that. Yeah. Five books, three book workbooks, another book coming out here at the end of the month, speak and meet virtually. And then my book big huge hallmark book has been speak with no fear but the one that i aim to be my hallmark book comes out in december and it's available for pre-order excellent excellent and so um mike the easiest way for people to learn about you i know we talked about audacityspeakers.com um what is the other best way is it through uh what what other website or what is the best way to learn more about all of what you're doing mike MikeGacker.com is a great place. Audacity Speakers is the agency that I co-run and Bart is in that too. We, we represent great speakers. And so love being a part of that. And But I'd love for people to reach out to me on MikeGacker.com or social media. All right, excellent. Mike, cannot thank you enough. Uh, terrific gentleman. Love learning about your background. Every, single, Mike, every time I talk to you, I learn something new about you. And then I also get a new idea or two about how I can apply it to improve my own life, to reach my own potential. So Mike Acker, connector, podcast host, communication expert, author, speaker, and a terrific gentleman that does what most people don't. So grateful, Mike. Thank you again. Thank you, Bart.